Okay, good morning. This is Richard Shu, host of Shoe Untied. Today, this morning, I'm very thrilled and honored to have with me as my guest, uh, Jim Collins, who's the author of numerous, numerous New York Times bestselling books, including Built to Last and Good to Great. Jim, welcome to the program. That's a delight for me to be here with you. So, Jim, let me start by asking you about Built to Last, because it's obviously mm. an iconic book. But tell me a little bit about how that idea came about and, and you know, really what, what, what were the seeds that germinated that book? Well, it began at Stanford, and uh, I was teaching a course on entrepreneurship and small business, which actually is my original area of passion and of interest, and I was 30 years old, and I had received the syllabus from uh, the previous renditions of the course, and the opening line of the syllabus said something like, this will be a course on the you know, the mechanics and challenges of the new business entrepreneur and small business leader. And I, and I, I thought to myself, wow, that just seems sort of small. And I wanted to push my students to something larger than that. So I, I scratched out the opening line of the syllabus. I remember doing this, crossed it out, and then rewrote in a new opening line to the syllabus uh, for a course called Business 352. And uh, they, I changed it to, this will be a course uh, on how to turn a new business or new venture or small business into an enduring great company, mm. period. And I remember looking at it and thinking to myself, wow, <laughs> I don't know anything about that. So, so that, that, but that's the frame I wanted to have. I was interested in people who cre- set out to create something truly iconic. I mean, I, I wasn't interested in you know, just starting a company or just kind of you know, becoming successful. I was interested in people like you know, Bill Boeing, who you know, would found a company that would end up one day you know, bringing the whole world into the jet age, or you know, people who uh, created companies that invented the idea of innovation as a systematic process, like the people who built the early days of 3M, or someone like Walt Disney, who had gone from uh, making Making you know a little Mickey Mouse character into this iconic enterprise of, of Disney, and and I wanted my students to sort of aspire to that standard. But the question was, what does it take to build not just a successful startup, but a great company that then might go on to be an enduring great company with that kind of iconic status? So uh, I thought to myself, I've always been interested in history, and I said, you know, if you really want to understand things, like if you want to understand. Uh, the United States of America. You go back to the founding, right? You go through the Revolutionary War, you look at the Constitutional Convention, you learn about the sort of founding roots, and then you begin to understand our history and where we are today in the context of that. And I thought, same thing has to apply to companies. And I said, let's rewind the tape of history because every one of those great iconic companies was once a startup, right? Every one of those big, giant companies that we all admire later began as small businesses. And I said, let's rewind the tape of history and figure out what did the small business leaders and the entrepreneurial founders of those companies do that allowed them to set the stage for these iconic companies. And that's where the research for Built to Last began. It was an entrepreneur's book. That was the original idea. And then I teamed up with Jerry Porras, one of my great uh, strokes of luck in life, or my mentors, and Jerry was one wonderful research methodologist. And Jerry said, there's a missing piece. We have to do something that by and large hasn't been done before, which is not only do we need to rewind the tape of history and then cover the entire history of these companies, we also 
I have to ask what made them different. And then that led to this marvelous method that, that has been really the real lever of that's led to the principles and the insights, which is you go back in time and you'll find at any given moment, you think of a Cambrian explosion, right? A new industry bursts on the scene, semiconductors, uh, biotechnology, uh, software, uh, you know, chemistry or pharmaceuticals or the aviation industry, any of these, you're going to find a whole bunch of companies that are kind of getting started at the same time. But when you get out a couple of few decades, there's only a, a, a small number left standing, and far fewer of those truly is the great companies. And Jerry said what we need to do is to go back to that kind of primordial soup of, of the beginning of these times and then ask who else was getting started in the same business at the same time with the same opportunities, with the same trajectory ahead of them, but they didn't become the Disney or the Boeing right, or the uh, – uh, the other companies that, that we studied and built to last and asked, what did the entrepreneurial founders and small business people who then built those companies do different? How were they different? How did they lead different? How did they think different? And that's how we would uh, get the insights of what would lead to uh, building a, a built-to-last company. And uh, that was really how it started. It was a, I wanted to have a great answer for my students and it took six years to come up with the answer, actually, because it took six <laughs> years of research to do it. And, but there's, there's great joy in that. I'm going to just give you one wonderful little example of how this research works. So we were studying uh, the early days of when we wanted to see how Paul Galvin, great entrepreneurial founder, built Motorola into a company that had a tremendous run for about five decades. And uh, we, you know, we asked this simple question, who was the other uh, who, 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 company competing with them at that time. Well, how would you figure out who was making car radios in 1927? Well, one of my good friends, Morton Hansen, who I later wrote a book with, uh, actually went all the way up to this arcane library up near University, I think it was at University of California, Berkeley, and went and got phone books from 1927. And then looked in those phone books to determine, actually look in the yellow pages, who else is selling car radios in 1927. And there's a company called Zenith. Boom. We have our comparison, right? And then we could contrast the two companies. How was, how was, how was Paul Galvin different as an entrepreneur than Commander McDonald, who was building Zenith, and, and, and had a better run as a result? And that kind of analysis we repeated over and over again. And not all companies last as great companies, but the idea is to aspire to that. And a, number, a lot of the companies in, in Built to Last are still standing as pretty iconic companies today. Not all, but most. Mm. Well, let me ask you this. Was it, I mean, you, obviously there are a lot of great companies today. There were a lot of great companies back then. Was it hard to actually window down this list to the number that you wanted in the book? Well, so the way we, uh, uh, we basically, uh, uh, we did a survey of uh, Inc. 500, uh, Inc. 100, and Fortune 500 servants and industrial CEOs. And we said, if there's something called a visionary company, not a company with a visionary leader, but a truly visionary company, what would be your top five candidates? And we sent to these thousands of CEOs and got all these cards back. I actually still have the cards. And then we sort of winnowed down from there. And then we basically, once we realized what we were looking at with the length, we cut out any that hadn't been around long enough to really qualify. And, uh, and so that allowed us to essentially, as we kind of sifted and sorted, we got down to 18, and then we did 18 pairs. So that was the essential method. That was a pretty good size set, because if you think about it, that's a lot of information. That means you have to study roughly you know, 50 to 100-year companies for their pairs across 18 of them. You know, that meant 
uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of data to have to go through and uh, information to have to go through, any one of which by itself could have been a book. Well, what was the hardest thing about that book then, would you say? Well, aside from the just sheer, what we affectionately call death marching uh, of the research, which in a way I sort of like, and the fact that you have to know you're going to be in it for you're going to be in it for years before you get to answers, right? You have to accept that you're going to, you're going to suffer for years to get there. <laughs> and that's just the nature of it. But the, I think the hardest and the funnest is coming up with what are the underlying principles that best explain the differences between those, uh, the, the, those who built the companies that had a much longer run and attained a visionary stature versus those that did not coming from the entrepreneurial base. And, and, and coming up with like what really is consistent and consistently different. And for me, what's deeply satisfying, what I really love, what I just still love to this day, is what I describe as going from chaos to concept. Right, you have all this information, you have all these stories, you have all this data, you have all this stuff, but out of that has got to come an underlying, elegant, powerful, simple, organizing idea that uh, is uh, highly correlated and perhaps even uh, deeply explanatory. And so one of those principles, and I just sort of stand back and share this with you because what became very exciting to me is these were not business principles. In the end, uh, I... These, if you think about it, you're comparing enduring great to you know not great. Then what drops out is the word company, because you've got companies on both sides of the equation. Your 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 better cases and your comparison cases. So you're really looking at human enterprises. Now let's really think about the one of the couple of the core ideas that came from built to last. So really basically two big ideas, three maybe depending on how you count it. One was this deeply beautiful idea, I think it's beautiful, called Preserve the Core, Stimulate Progress. And if you zoom way out in the course of, of, of looking at human enterprise of any kind, societies, universities, organizations, companies, that what seemed to separate the ones who had the better run over the longest period of time was think of the yin-yang symbol. On the left side is this notion of having something core that you preserve and that you build around not a set of strategies or technologies or you know, kind of current market positions. You build around a set of values, and you build around uh, a purpose that is far bigger than uh, just making a bunch of money for folks. Right? You're actually there to do something that when you, were, when you do it, you would look at it and say, if we hadn't done this, the world would have been a different place, right? If we hadn't brought the world into the jet age, if we hadn't sort of brought certain kinds of chemistry to the world, if we had, like, the world, if we disappeared from the world, there'd be an unfillable hole, right? Because we've done something so distinctive in our purpose, and we preserve the intensity of that purpose, the intensity of those values. That's preserved the core. But the other side of the coin is stimulating progress, and that while you hold the core constant, you're constantly stimulating change and improvement and innovation, renewal, everything that's not part of that core. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got a set of values you're holding to, but on the other hand, you're setting really audacious goals like let's, you know, transfer all of our energy into 
betting on the 707 and bring the world into the jet age. Let's go uh, and actually take our characters and create this marvelous new thing called Disneyland, right? Like, let's, uh, you know, let's actually, you know, think about how we can not just stick with memory chips and make this transition into transferring momentum into what would become the microprocessors, right? That's a constant drive for progress combined with an underlying core. Mm. And that <clears throat> ability to preserve the core and stimulate progress, and I just zoom out, right? Think about um, the founding of the United States and the, and the, and the Constitution. Right? On the one hand, you have a founding statement of ideology and values. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We're imperfect. We have to constantly you know, try to live better to them. But there's a fundamental core starting point. You translate that into a continuity and, and change mechanism called the Constitution, which provides a stability right, and a way to be able to kind of hold together over a long period of time. But then... Think about what the framers of the Constitution did that was really capturing, preserve the core, and stimulate progress. They put in the Constitution this marvelous invention called the amendment mechanism. Why did they do that? Because they understood that you have to be able to hold your values constant, but you have to be able to say we have to change our practices. As the world around us changes, as our own perfections become clear, we have to be able to evolve and change our practices while trying to live to our core values. And the amendment mechanism is kind of the manifestation of the idea of whole values change practices, right? Whole purpose change strategies and approaches to the world. And if you didn't have the, if you didn't have the amendment mechanism, you become irrelevant. But if you don't have the stabilizing notion of something that holds your core together, you also blow apart. And you really need both. That, to me, is the, is the essential idea that came from built to last. And the hard part was trying to distill to that, but that's the fun part, right? How do you take all these cases, all this data, all this information, all these spreadsheets, and come up with a simple idea, preserve the core and stimulate progress? That's the big thing. And the second big thing is the idea of being a clock builder, not a time teller. And if you'd like, we could spend a little time on that, because I think for the entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, we have a lot of time tellers, and we need more clock builders. Well, let me ask you, when the book came out, obviously it was um, obviously a New York Times bestseller, but was the success like immediate or uh, did it take time and were you surprised by how the reception was? I was so surprised by the, uh, by the success of it. In, in, I, I, we were just doing our work. I was just kind of hiding away, completely unknown at Stanford, working with George, Jerry, and there was a certain bliss in that. And I'll just tell you a little story about how surprising it was. So I had to uh, do a little session or talk for the Stanford Alumni Association over to a small little hotel in, in Half Moon Bay. And I was over there, I think it was October 28 of 1994. Uh, and uh, I was, you know, I'd put six years of my life into this thing and didn't know if it was going to go anywhere. And initially it didn't really get any, you know, it wasn't clear that it was going to get real traction because people didn't understand the magnitude of the question. And you just don't know. I mean, that's the thing. You do a big project like this. It's a huge bet. And so I get up that morning and I open my hotel room door and I look down and there's a copy of USA Today. And uh, I pick it up and bring it into my room and I look at it and the top banner on the front page of USA Today is, you know, built to last co-authors, you know, work on what makes great companies or something like that. And I thought, that's weird. And I turned to the business section and it's the entire front page of the business section of <laughs> USA Today. There's a picture of Jerry and me. And I'm thinking, and here's what went through my mind. This will tell you how surprised I was. I thought that some of my friends had taken pity on me 
and had created that as a joke. <laughs> okay. And that, and that, uh, and that they had put it in front of my door to just sort of make me feel better. Kind of like it, cause it was the actual release date of the book. Mm-hmm. And they had invented, they'd actually created this fake USA today for me. <laughs> and, and that I was going to get a call saying, ha ha on you. So I go downstairs and I go, and I notice that there's a whole stack of USA Todays, and they all look the same. And what went through my mind was, wow, my friends really went to town. <laughs> like, they made a whole bunch of them and filled up the whole hotel. <laughs> so, so and, then, and then I got a phone call from, like, my publisher saying, you know, we're 50,000 copies backordered. We don't know. You know, we, we're going to have to catch up on that and so forth. And then, and then it started to gain traction. It was so kind of unforeseen that uh, it it was six months later that the Wall Street Journal finally ran a review of it when they said, we somehow, you know, we didn't re- review this at the time, but all these CEOs are talking about it, so now we're going to review it in April, even though it came in in October. But yeah, I was, I was quite surprised. <laughs> well, of all, I'm sure you got, obviously, a ton of feedback, but did, what was the, I don't know, the biggest insight you got about why this book resonated so well? I mean, was it just because it was the first of its kind, or what, what do you think about that? I think that... Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer in part because I don't know why the question even appealed to me in the first place. I think that it appealed to people on, for two reasons. The first is because we asked a big question, right? I, I think that people have a really deep, you know, creator types have a really deep yearning to do or to build something that brings them meaning in the building of it, right? It brings them meaning far beyond uh, that they were just somehow successful while they were here. And, and this notion and that, would be, that, would out, that would be bigger than them and longer lasting than they are and would achieve some kind of you know, noble aspiration. And I, even in today's cynical age, I believe deeply that the best in people aspire to that and that there's something inside them that gets ignited by that. And when then somebody puts the question, well, why wouldn't you want to try to do that? Like, why wouldn't you want to try to build something great and iconic and lasting and purposeful? Uh, I think that that ignited in a lot of people, that just reframes what I'm trying to do and puts it on a larger, mm. on a larger plane. I think that was one, just the grandeur of the question. Mm. But the second is the research base, right? Uh, I mean, Jerry and I spent six years in a yeah, very a rigorous methodology that Jerry really was the inspiration for inventing that match pair method, really data driven to try to get to answers that would lead to those principles that might then stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. And I think the research approach combined with the fact that we were searching for principles that would stand the test of time, I think that really appealed to a lot of folks who everyone has an opinion. Everybody has points of view. Everybody has their own stories. We had hundreds and hundreds of years of evidence assembled in a rigorous way, then distilled into a few key concepts. And I think that credit really goes to Jerry. Jerry was the one who really understood it had to be deeply, rigorously research-based. So tell me a little bit now, um, 25 years later, looking back on this book, I mean, how, how does it look to you now? Does it, do you feel like it still holds up pretty well? Do you, you know, would you have some, done something differently? What, what is your view of it now today? 
Well, you always improve your methods. Okay, so I mean, and and you would you would never do you know twenty five years of 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 analysis and work and thinking. You you're always going to get some new and better ways of doing things. That said, in the case of of built to last, uh, I. Obviously, I need to be really clear about one thing. Build to Last was never about the companies, right? The companies, we were studying kind of dynastic eras of greatness. And it wasn't, the whole point, the point of the book was never to say these companies are X. It was using a set of companies that over a period of time had achieved a certain stature and then learning from them. Some of them, many of them kept it, some of them lost it. But the key is during those great dynastic eras, you learn from them to get the principles. And when you understand it through that lens and you really realize that, that it was the principles, not the companies, that came from the work, I believe even more deeply in the principles today. I think um, when I look back, I think that notion of preserve the core, stimulate progress, the idea that those who build enduring great companies, they are clock builders, not time tellers. Right? They're not the single genius visionary on whom everything depends. At some point, they shift and say, no, I don't want to be the time teller anymore. I need to build a clock that can tell the time even if I'm not here. And, and the notion of the genius of the and prevailing over the tyranny of the or. And, and then the other idea that came out of Built to Last that was a method of stimulating progress, but I still believe in as much as ever, which is the power of BHAGs, the power of big, hairy, audacious goals to <coughs> force us to be better. And I think those ideas are, especially the, the core ones, uh, are as timeless as ever. And I, uh, I, that was, for me, the main goal in the end was some concepts that if I was, you know, there a hundred years later, I would say, you know, the principles are still sound. And mm. we're only 25 years now, and I feel they're very sound. Mm. Well, let me ask you, since you've been researching this stuff for a long time, you've obviously been speaking on, you've written so many books. Do you feel like there's still much more to learn and research, or do you feel like at this point you've kind of, you know, is it getting old? I mean, tell me about that. Well, so as you probably can tell from our initial conversation where my first thing was to ask you a bunch of questions, I, we all have an addiction in life, right, uh, somewhere. Mine's curiosity. I am just, I just love to learn. Mm. I'm much more interested in what I don't know uh, than in what I do know. I was really infected by one of my mentors uh, who I didn't spend that much time with, but had a huge impact on me, John Gardner, who former Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare in the Johnson administration, was a senior faculty at Stanford when I was a junior faculty. And he had this, you know, he had this wonderful moment with me one day where he, he pulled me into his office and he said, you know, Jim, it occurs to me that you spend way too much time trying to be interesting. <laughs> Why don't you spend more time being interested? <laughs> I mean, that, that's what a great teacher does, right? They change your life, mm-hmm. like bang, like whack, you just got smacked upside the head. <laughs> but that went deeply in, and I really realized that the key in life is to be interested. And, and if you're interested, everything becomes interesting. So for me, it's always about the curiosity quest. And the way I would look after now, we have more than 6,000 years of combined corporate history across four research, major, major research studies that all looked at the question of what makes great companies tick. We got a built-to-last study. That was six years. The 
the good to great study was five years. How the Mighty Fall was another four years. And then Great by Choice, the, the most recent one, which goes back to my entrepreneurial roots with Morton Hansen, nine years, right? And the way I look at it is uh, that my curiosity in that arena has largely been satisfied. That's very different than saying that we have all the answers. Mm. Okay? It's that my curiosity has largely been satisfied. And so I'm coming up on 60 now. And uh, I, I look at it, I'm always inspired by people who keep growing and who keep their exploration alive. And I'm standing here in my home office right now looking at, at a photograph of some of my mentors. And uh, one of them is Peter Drucker. And right above the picture I have of Peter is a picture of all of Peter's books uh, that he wrote uh, in his life, first editions of them. And they're chronologically laid out on a bookshelf. And I'm literally looking at it right this moment as we're talking. And it's chronologically by when he wrote them. And I have a little tag of where he was at my age. And do you realize that at age 65, Peter Drucker was only one-third of the way across the shelf? Hmm. At age 65, he had two-thirds of his life's work ahead of him. Hmm. And, and I look at that, and I have this little thing. It's like, you, you are here at 60. I'm about 25%. <laughs> and, and if you look at what Peter did, he just never stopped. He kept widening the question. He never stuck in just one arena to a really large question, which is how to make society both more productive and more humane. That was his big question. And everything kind of fit into that. And what I find myself thinking now is, what are the, you know, how do I take a, a sort of, if you do 60 as a starting point, right? a beginning place, like everything up to this point has been preparation, hmm. right? What are the next sets of questions, right? What are the questions that, that have to do with, you know, if you've done the what makes great companies tick questions, uh, what are other questions? And so I'm turning my attention increasingly to the social sectors. I'm turning my question. I just finished a big three-year project on K-12 education uh, and the role of unit leadership there. Um, and I'm doing a study finally inspired by John Gardner, on a question of deep interest to me, been of interest for 30 years, just was unprepared to try to answer it, which is the question of self-renewal. Because the reality is most of us don't renew very well, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and the question is what separates those who self-renew exceptionally well from those who don't? To me, that's just one of the great human questions that befuddle most of us. And so I'll be turning my attention uh, quite rigorously to that question. Let me ask you this. Obviously, I know you do speak. Obviously, you're a speaker. You're obviously an author. Um, what do you enjoy the most between, say, speaking, doing research, and actually writing? And how do you? I mean, how do? How do? What, what, what's really those? Which of those do you really like the most? Well, um, writing is a lot like being an athlete, where. Here's the best way to describe writing. So writing is just pain, right? <laughs> That's just what it is. It's just pain. And, uh, but there's a satisfaction in that pain. I've been a rock climber most of my life, and we have a phrase that we describe in climbing called the suffer fest, right? Mm. And, uh, and, and to some extent, you have to sort of embrace the suffering of it. If you can't embrace the suffering of it and actually enjoy the suffering of it, uh, you're, you're never going to climb your best. And I think of writing as like, for those who are runners, it's like uh, running a, a PR, right? If you're running a personal record, it's always going to hurt. Mm. And, and as a runner, you get faster, 
but it never gets easier. Whenever you're running whatever your best time is for the 800 meters or the 5K or the 10K, it is going to hurt. Mm. And writing is the same way, that uh, you, you get better as a writer, but it never gets easier. Mm. And every time you sit down and you face the inadequacy of your capacity to make words fit with concepts and to really work, what, even if you're writing 10 times better than you did 20 years ago, it's still going to hurt just as bad if you're trying to write your best. And so to me, that's just the nature of writing. So is writing fun? Um, Oh, boy. You know, here's the thing is you should never write a book until you've done everything you can to talk yourself out of that book. People often ask, how do you choose a book? You choose a book by basically saying, I'm not going to do it. I won't capitulate to this. I refuse to do this. I am not going. And then one day you wake up and you say, if I only had five years left in my life, I would dedicate three years to writing this book. Mm. I can't not do it. Right? Mm. Then you write the book. And, and I think that but, but you have to derive the satisfaction from the mastery that goes with the suffering of writing. I would never give writing up because writing is thinking, and mm. you should never give up your thinking. Now, the flip side is the beauty of teaching is you, you've finally gone through the journey of writing, and then you get the joy of sharing it with people. Mm. Right? One is saying, like, wow, we went off on this journey. We did this research. We got these concepts. We went through the pain of writing. Oh, back from the dark hole, the cave, I want to share it with everyone. And so in terms of just sheer, absolute, unadulterated joy, the chance to share what we've learned. So I don't think of it as speaking. I don't think of it, I think of it as sharing what we've learned. Mm. And uh, wanting, and, and, and to me, like people ask if I'm speaking to 5,000 people, do I get nervous? And I'm like, no, there's nothing to get nervous about. There's nothing to get nervous about because what you're doing is you're walking out there and you're basically with this, this impulse of like, I really want you to get this. Hmm. I really want you to internalize this. I really want this to affect how you think and how you lead. I want to give you this. Hmm. Right? And because that's what you're trying to do, there's nothing to be nervous about. It is just sheer joy as a teacher to try to get ideas powerful ideas into the hands of, into the brains of people who can use those ideas to make the world work, work better. I want to ask you a little bit about, is your career and the way your career has evolved anything like you envisioned it when you were a very young man or a student? Tell me a little bit about how, or did you have some idea maybe this is what, where you'd end up or what you'd end up doing? Um, you know, like, like many of, of us in life, uh, the answer, of course, is to some extent yes and no. Uh, I, I think I had an instinct early on for one of the concepts that came out of, out, of, uh, out of good to great, which was what I call searching for your hedgehog, right? And in good to great, we talked about the idea of having a hedgehog concept which, for a company, which is doing what you're passionate about, what you can be the best in the world at, and what drives your economic engine. And I think that there was sort of a groping early on on my part for kind of finding a personal hedgehog, which is finding something I'm really passionate about and love to do, something that I'm genetically encoded for, and then something at which I could be useful and make a living at doing, right? And that would kind of be the personal hedgehog. And when I went away to college, I went to Stanford undergraduate, and I studied mathematical sciences. And I really thought I was going to be a mathematician uh, because I was one of these kids that was 
good at math, uh, and I like math. I love math. I, I actually like doing differential equations and inverting <laughs> matrices, and wow. you know, I'll do a statistics book just for fun. Um, <laughs> but you know, but here's the reality: I met people who were encoded for math. Mm. Right? They're a different. They're they're a different wiring, and I realized that uh, they had a gift for math. That while I could get to the same place. I could, you know, get to the end of the proof. They could do it in quarter the time and a quarter the number of steps. Mm. And they, they, had a, they had a wiring. And I thought to myself, I need to find what I'm wired for, what I'm encoded for. Because if you can blend that, you're doing something you love to do, and that when you do it, you sort of feel like, I'm, that's my wiring, that's my encoding. And I think a lot of what happens to a lot of us in life is we get, we're smart enough to be good at things, but what if actually what, you're, what you force yourself to be good at is not what you're really wired for? Mm. And then eventually you wake up one day and discover that you actually have a career built upon what you have disciplined yourself to be good at. But it wasn't what you were really made for. Mm. And uh, fortunately, because of these super smart wired people in the you know, real analysis or ring theory class or whatever I was in, I could see the difference between them and me. Mm. and realized they were wired for that better than I was, that I started a quest early on to try to find what I could be wired in. And, and, that, and then that was kind of a groping process like many of us go through. But I think the real instant came when I realized uh, that I was just inspired by big questions and synthesizing information, that sort of chaos to concept kind of wiring. And I discovered that relatively early when I was... You know, working on, uh, I was working up at McKinsey and Company, and we were trying to synthesize sort of big, challenging problems into a concept, and, mm. and, and that's the way it felt. But the real moment that I had a glimpse that all this would happen, that kind of the path, that happened at 22. I was working, doing computer modeling. I was taking my math ability and creating you know, sort of spreadsheets before there were spreadsheets in 1980-81 so you could put in variables and run analyses and stuff. And I'm working on a little microcomputer with eight-inch floppies off in a corner. And I walked out on a Saturday morning and I looked down the hall and I saw a stack of orange binders. You know, and McKinsey binders are blue. They're not orange. And I thought, <laughs> wow, that's interesting. And I went down the hall and I, I noticed next to the Xerox machine there was this little thing called the Excellence Project. And Bob Waterman had hired me, and Tom Peters had his office right across the hall from me. And they were in the middle of, of a research project that eventually became them in search of excellence. And I asked them, asked the people who were doing the research, I was 22, can I get involved in this project? And they sent me off to say, well, we need some background research on Boeing. And I remember going off and trying to make sense of the history of this company and then the human drama mm. of losing 92% of their revenues overnight and after the Second World War and then transferring from military bombers to commercial aircraft and betting on the 707 and doing all that just struck me as almost like Shakespearean. It's almost like the Iliad or something. And I thought, this is so interesting. I want to understand it. And I think that's when the seed went in. But I would, have, I would have had no idea at that point. I was more or less following my curiosity then it would end up where I am today talking with you today. Uh, I'm very, very lucky. I'm one of those lucky people who stumbled on um, something that I never really want to stop the essence of doing mm. until my breath runs out. Mm. I mean, 
I, mm. I don't understand why I would ever stop the Curiosity Fest. Let me ask you this. What, um, is there a certain activity that you do or a certain mindset that you do when you just want to think? Or, or tell me how the source of inspiration for new ideas come to you. Is it, do you are you reading something or are you rock climbing? Tell me about that a little mm. bit. You know, it, it comes in a lot of different ways. Uh, I, I think, first of all, I love to be challenged by people who, who really make me think by smacking me with a, a question or a comment that I can't really respond to at the moment, and something goes deep in. So I engage in conversations where I listen to people and I ask them questions or they ask me questions. I remember, um, you know, there's an opening section to the start of Good to Great, which describes where the inspiration for that question came from. And I was having dinner with Bill Meehan, who I still look up to, just sort of forward to his new book on uh, engines of impact or really having to do with nonprofits and such. And we've remained friends all these years. And Bill read Built to Last. And he, uh, uh, and he said, you know, Built to Last is, you know, there are things about it that are really helpful and uh, in terms of understanding the world, he said, unfortunately, as much as I love the book, it's useless. I said, why is it useless? He says, well, the problem is, if you didn't have somebody who kind of had the architectural founding roots, right, if you didn't have a Walt Disney or a Bill Boeing or a, or a David Packard and Bill Hewlett or whoever who could set those foundations early, you know, then, then what happens to the rest of companies that wake up partway through life and they're big, lumbering, average companies and they never, they never were great? It seems to me that they sort of missed the built to last boat early on. So good is good and great is great. Never the twain shall meet. Built to last is interesting, but for most of us, useless. Mm. And, um, and I thought, wow, that's a really great question. And so I flew home on the airplane, and I remember the moment. I actually took out a, 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 a thinking, started trying to make a list of companies that I – had thought it for most of their history just been average that then became great. And I was really having trouble coming up with a list. And so then I, I drew a sat on my porch uh, on 11th Street in Boulder. I was just looking out, out sitting on my porch. And I, I drew a curve, which was a curve that went flat across the page and then hit this point and then would rise at about a 45 degrees angles up from there. And I thought, okay, we need to find companies that, that did show that pattern. And then I drew a flat line below that, which is the comparison companies that didn't do it, and put a big question mark right between the gap, right? What allowed some to make that break and others to not, given that they might have been similar? And I wrote at the top of the page something like, can a good company become a great company, and if so, how? Boom. It was the day after the conversation with Bill Meehan. I had no idea 48 hours before that what the next five years of my life would be. Mm. 48 hours before. The question wasn't even there. Mm. Bill asked that question, but the response to it was, I want to know the answer to that question. The beauty of it was, I didn't know the answer to the question. So the inspiration Mm. to me was, I have no idea. I really want to know. I really want to understand. And so then then it became five years of research to Mm. try to see, are there such companies? You know, have people done that in history? What accounts for the principles of that, et cetera? So to me, a lot of the inspiration comes from marvelous interactions with marvelous people who challenge you. And, am I, and then I just am voracious in continuing my curiosity. I love these courses by the teaching company, uh, the Great Courses series. And I don't know, I've done probably about 200 of them now, and everything from chaos theory to I'm doing, I'm just, this morning was doing a lecture on 
for the great uh, structures course uh, by a civil engineering professor from West Point who loves structures. This is a man in his hedgehog. And I'm learning all about the building of the pyramids and the Roman Gothic cathedrals. Well, I don't know where that will lead, but it's interesting, Mm. right? How could you not want to understand Mm. how people went from pyramids to building Gothic cathedrals? Mm. I don't know what the practical use of it is, but (laughs) it's interesting. Mm. And that's kind of a lot of what feeds me. Well, Jim, this has been a fascinating conversation. I could obviously talk to you for hours, since you're, but since your career is really just starting, I'd love to check in with a few years and see where things are headed. <laughs> That's true. 60 is uh, the way to wake up when you turn 60 is to basically say, nice start. <laughs> there you go. This is Richard Chu and Jim Collins. Thanks. Thanks.